Moving from a sedentary to a physically active societal way of life. This is... Welcome to the premiere episode of Up On Our Feet, the first in an ongoing series of interviews, discussions, reports, and other formats that deal with the issue of moving from a sedentary to a physically active societal way of life, especially as this relates to education, health, the environment, and the economy. And for this premiere episode, we're pleased to have as our guest, Professor Charles Hillman of Northeastern University in Boston, an internationally recognized neuroscientist whose research specializes in the connection between physical activity and cognition, including how physical activity impacts students' academic performance. Professor Hillman is also a member of the American Sports Institute's International Board of Advisors. Professor, Professor Hillman, nice to have you with us. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here today. Thank you. Okay, so let's start off. Most people may not be familiar with the term or the field of neuroscience. What is neuroscience? Yeah, uh, thanks, Joel. Um, neuroscience is simply the science of the nervous system, which includes brain and uh, spinal column for most part. Okay, and then your particular area is or one of your specialty areas is physical activity in the realm of neuroscience. I imagine there are other fields of study in neuroscience? Absolutely. I mean, neuroscience is a huge field. It includes cognition, which is my area, affect and emotion. So there's affective neuroscience, um, social neuroscience. Uh, there's basic neuroscience where people you know, use animal models. And, and physical activity is crossed into many of these different areas. Okay. So how did you, what was your journey? How did you end up with neuroscience and physical activity? Yeah, I mean, that's a long, that's a long answer. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, to tell you how far I came, my master's thesis was on the, the psychophysiology of sports fans um, and looking at emotional responses. And you can actually go back to, I think it was 97 and look up, uh, I was covered in Sports Illustrated. Um, but anyway, um, you know, Back then, neuroscience wasn't really a field as we discuss it today. I mean, the field was psychophysiology, which was sort of the roots of neuroscience. And, and I, would, I was not, I was starting to study brain back then using EEG, um, but was also saying a number of peripheral measures and reflex measures like the sorrow reflex and heart rate and skin conductance. Um, but eventually, found my interest in cognitive aging and was interested in how older adults. Um, as part of the natural aging process, uh, their brains slow down. They, you know, memory complaints are frequent, um, and it can be pathological as well, leading to, you know, uh, diseases like um, dementia or Alzheimer's disease. And and so my actual dissertation, dissertation back in 99, 2000 was on the effects of physical activity, uh, or sorry, uh, cardiovascular fitness on uh, cognitive aging using neuroscience tools. Um, but then it was somewhere around 2002, 2003 that I sort of flipped the question and started to ask about uh, questions around whether physical activity and aerobic fitness could improve, uh, could improve cognitive function and underlying aspects of brain function in children. Mm, okay. And so I assume, and we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, 
that's what led to eventually your work with academic achievement? Yeah, so actually, um, I have to give a lot of credit to Darla Castelli, who's now a professor uh, at the University of Texas at Austin. But Darla and I were, were both um, at the University of Illinois at the same time. We bonded over not just science, but we're fellow New Englanders. And um, we uh, and so when I, I went to her, because I, I really didn't know a whole lot about studying children, um, you know, we, we began to have discussions and she got fascinated with my uh, neuroscience approach and my cognitive approach. And I got fascinated with her approach to studying student achievement. And so we found ways to combine all of that and, um, and at times to integrate one, uh, those various outcomes into uh, coherent stories. Okay. All right. So let's, uh, we're going to get to academic achievement in a few minutes, but let's back up here. Just how does how does physical activity impact the brain? What's, what's the process? How does that happen? Yeah, Joel, that's a good question. And, and quite frankly, we know somewhat what goes on, but it's not a single pathway or a single mechanism. Uh, you know, we could talk about this from a molecular and cellular perspective. We could talk about it from a systems perspective, uh, brain structure, brain function, um, and so forth. And so I, I guess, you know, we know that there's a number of, you know, molecular aspects of brain that are affected by physical activity and, and other lifestyle factors, right? Diet, nutrition, things like that. And, and so, you know, at, at, this, at, at that level, we're, we're seeing changes in, in um, neurogenesis and, uh, you know, the, the formation of new neurons, angiogenesis, the formation of, of capillary beds that, that bring, you know, blood flow to neurons, um, we see changes in, um, in growth factors like brain-derived neurotrophin factor that are, you know, that feed, uh, you know, that provide the environment in which to grow or which to have genesis occur. Um, we see effects uh, certainly at the cellular level. Um, we know that, for instance, uh, great animal work from the 80s by a guy named uh, uh, Bill Greeno, who's since passed, he, uh, he showed that uh, if you give uh, rodents uh, access to a running wheel. They, they exhibit angiogenesis in the cerebellum. So they have greater blood flow to keep up with that metabolic demand of, of adding exercise into their lives. Um, but if you give them uh, what I like to call sort of like rodent Cirque du Soleil, right? We have them, you know, he would have them like walk on tight ropes and climb ladders and attach weights to their back. And they learn all these different aspects of motor uh, skill and motor, you know, performance. Uh, they didn't exhibit angiogenesis, they, ex they exhibited synaptogenesis. So the neurons in the cerebellum would, you know, had more branching and to speak and could speak to one another, transmit information to one another more, uh, more effectively and more efficiently. And so different types of exercise have different effects on, on uh, cellular aspects of brain. Now, work in humans uh, doesn't go to that level. I mean, we, we don't get a lot of, a lot of offers to uh, allow us to have a, you know, a piece of tissue from, from people's brains. Uh, instead, we have to use imaging tools. And so uh, early on, we used um, EEG and, and, and uh, an area of EEG called event-related brain potentials to look at ele the electrical system of the brain. I still have a line of research that's interested in that area. Um, more recently, it's been the advent of, of uh, using MRI and functional MRI in order to measure uh, brain structure and brain function, um, you know, using where we can get a much... Um, holistic understanding of what's going on instead of just looking at little, uh, little aspects of, of brain tissue. Um, 
And then others have used PET and MEG and all kinds of imaging devices. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, behavior. I mean, we can infer what's going on in the brain from uh, well-designed uh, behavioral studies or cognitive studies where we can you know, use manipulation, in this case, uh, exercise exposure, and look at how um, certain aspects of cognition change and not others. And from that, we can infer areas of the brain that are involved. Okay. So you've just talked about a number of things and a number of areas of the brain that are affected by, by physical activity. Would you just say a few words, because I know the hippocampus has a lot to do with learning and memory, and we're going to get into the issue about kids and academic achievement. Would you say a little bit about how physical activity impacts the hippocampus, where the hippocampus is, because probably most people have never heard of it? Okay. Well, uh, Joel, that's a good question. I mean, the hippocampus is probably our most uh, researched area of the brain when it comes to physical activity uh, across humans and and non-human animals, such as rodents. Um, You know, rodents have well-developed hippocampi uh, relative to other regions of their brain. If you were to put your fingers in your ears, the hippocampus is where they would meet in the middle of the brain. So it's a subcortical structure sitting down, you know, in in sort of the the deep depths of the brain, uh, right kind of in the middle. it gets its name because it's, it's somewhat horseshoe shaped. Um, but anyway, the hippocampus has demonstrated that it is uh, amenable to physical activity or exercise interventions, both from a structural and functional perspective. Um, meaning that with, through inter- exercise intervention, we could influence both the, the size and shape as well as how the, the hippocampus functions. Uh, hippocampus is important because in rodents, as I said, it's well-developed. It's, uh, it's involved in, in aspects of memory, particularly associative or relational memory, um, and, as well as a whole bunch of other functions uh, of cognition. And it's important in humans because there's rich tracks uh, that, that connect the hippocampus to all kinds of different areas of the brain, including the prefrontal cortex, which is really important for humans. Um, so if I were to step back and talk about associative memory or relational memory, this is, this is the type of memory that's involved when we're trying to understand relationships in our environment. And so if you think about, uh, you know, the small rodents, maybe a mouse out in the wild, uh, you know, they're, they're hiding in their hole, but they got to come out eventually because they got to eat, they got to, you know, they want to, they're genetically, um, you, you know, pre, genetically programmed to want to mate and whatnot and, and to socialize. And so what they wanna do is, is they gotta get out of that hole and they gotta go find food, they gotta go find their mate, things like that. But they also gotta know where their hole is, where the predator is, and all of this happens in time and space. And so the hippocampus comes online to form relationships in the environment. So, so that in this case, that, that tiny rodent can remember, okay, you know, I better not go left because I know that there's a cat that lives over there and, you know, but if I go right, I know that there's, you know, tasty food over there. And, and so uh, it's very important from that perspective. For in humans, the hippocampus is equally as important, but it's also important for higher order aspects of learning, like, uh, you know, like scholastic performance, which we'll get to in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And would you say a few words then, because we're going to get right into that, also about physical activity and executive functions and just what are executive functions? Certainly. So I mentioned uh, the prefrontal cortex a minute ago, and the prefrontal cortex and its associated network um, is 
is important for executive functioning. Humans have, uh, you know, really the most developed um, prefrontal cortex of any any species on the planet, and uh, that's where most of our higher order cognition occurs. Um, and so, among those higher order aspects, of cognition is executive functioning. This is our um, our ability to perform the intentional components of, of our actions within the environment, meaning that we're acting at a will, not at a reflex. And so, uh, you know, this is important when we have goal-directed actions. You know, we, you know, it, it, you may be hungry as lunchtime's approaching, and you're going to plan, you know, to get in your car and drive to, you know, Whole Foods and you know, go pick up a sandwich at the, at the deli, right? And that all involves executive action, right? You have to, you, you have goals, you have to achieve those goals, you have to figure out how you're going to get there, you're scheduling and coordinating and all these sorts of things in order to make it, to make it reality, right? And, and so executive function is commonly, uh, is commonly decomposed into three areas of cognition. Uh, one is inhibition, which is our ability to ignore distractions, stay focused on relevant aspects of the environment. Uh, the second is working memory. Uh, this is our ability to hold information in our mind, manipulate it, and then use it when appropriate. Obviously, this is also very hippocampally dependent. Um, and then cognitive flexibility uh, requires multiple aspects, not just the ability to men be mentally flexible, it also involves inhibition and working memory because it's the idea that we're gonna hold information in our mind, we're gonna execute a task based on the demands of that task, then we're gonna inhibit that task, we're gonna to go to a second task, we're gonna execute that task based on a different set of, of mappings and instructions, we're gonna inhibit that and go back and forth. And this is often what we call multitasking, right? This is our ability to say, um, drive and text, but we know we don't do that very well, right? We, and, and so the moral here is that while cognitive flexibility is an important aspect of executive function, there are very, very few people that are able to do two tasks as well as they can do either task separately. Okay. All right, so let's let's take all this. We've got executive functions, we've got the hippocampus, we've got physical activity, we've got rodents running around figuring all these things out, and we've got kids running around on our schools. And so how does all of this, the hippocampus, the physical activity, the executive functions, how does this all come into play with our kids, their academic performance and their social emotional states in school? Yeah, Joel, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and and I, I, I'll tell you up front, I don't have a great answer for you. I mean, you know, we're based, Basically, what I what I, I have a few things I can say. Um, you know, I, I guess I'd start from a more of a perspective on on our species and our history as a species. Um, you know, we weren't always sedentary. Uh, we are now sedentary as a species. Um, we've known this for several decades. Uh, you know, the human genome was developed in concert with movement and is dependent upon movement. Um, and so, from a metabolic perspective you know, we're at a mismatch between the, you know, our human genome and how we live our lives. And because of this, we have, uh, you know, we have a pandemic of, of obesity, which has been around long before the pandemic we're all talking about now. Um, and we've had a pandemic of inactivity. Um, this relates to not just obesity, but to metabolic disorders. Um, and this is all stuff that actually our, you know, our, our mutual friend, Fernando Gomez Pena would be probably thrilled to talk about it's right in his area. Um, 
And so, you know, what we're looking at here, in my view, is a is a species, and in this case, children uh, uh, of that species that are not adequately adequately physically active for the most part. And so, um, you know, really, what we're talking about is maybe you know less optimal cognitive performance from where we could be. And so when we introduce physical activity into their world, which oftentimes now is forced in some regards, we'll use force loosely, um, you know, we're, we're able to benefit their cognitive functions and ultimately their academic performance. So that, that's one piece of it. Um, we know that executive functions heavily underlie academic performance. So children who are better executive functioners, better inhibitors, better with working memory, better cognitive flexibility are, are, better, are better in school. You know, kids who can inhibit inappropriate behaviors, they learn better. Kids who can, um, you know, carry the remainder and hold that in working, in, in working memory, they perform better math, right? Or if they can hold uh, a passage in their mind and answer questions, they, they perform their reading comprehension uh, better. Mm -hmm. So they're better performers. And knowing that physical activity benefits those aspects of cognition, you know, what it ultimately leads to better overall performance as well. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, one of the problems we have is that, you know, the, the physical activity literature in this area is underdeveloped. I mean, it's, it's, it's a work in progress, right? We have, there's some evidence that uh, physical activity benefits scholastic performance using randomized control trials, but there's other evidence it doesn't. And, and that, you know, we could have a whole hour long conversation about why that is, but, but briefly, lots of, you know, not all studies are created equal. So, you know, um, there's differences in intervention, there's differences in, in, you know, the types of outcomes they use, there's differences in the, in the physical activity dose that's being used. And, and so until we clarify that, we don't really know just how robust this relationship truly is. Okay, so um, our viewers may not know this, but I know this, and You've done extensive studies on the correlation between physical activity and academic achievement. You, uh, without uh, trying to embarrass you, you're highly praised throughout the uh, community as to your work. I, I know people where you've traveled to their countries to make presentations and things like that. Of the studies you've done, putting all your knowledge and skills into doing peer-reviewed studies that, that, that stand the test of time. What do your studies say regarding the correlation between physical activity and academic achievement? Yeah, uh, well, thanks for that, Joel. I mean, I, I guess I'd say, I, you know, I'm, I represent a, a strong group of scholars and, and I'm fortunate to be able to uh, represent them here and elsewhere. Um, so, so our work, uh, we can really break it down to two areas. Um, if we're just going to stick to physical activity, obviously, I, you know, there's other lifestyle factors that right, right. like obesity and things like that. But when it comes to physical activity, we can talk about two areas. We can talk about um, randomized control trials that, you know, where we take children, they get randomized to either a physical activity group or, a, you know, or, or a control group. And we look at, you know, pre post baseline to post test differences in, in cognition and, and, and aspects of brain. Um, or we could talk about what's the effect of a single dose of exercise. That is, we give kids a single 
dose of exercise, uh, what's the temporary improvement in cognition look like in brain function and academic performance? And so if we take the first area, um, what we know is that from the work in my laboratory, uh, we've run two randomized controlled trials, RCTs called Fit Kids and Fit Kids 2, very original in the second one. Um, and we, uh, we, we've shown that six months of physical activity interaction, which, you know, just to give a dose to that, was five days a week for two hours after school for 165 days out of 180 school, school day, 180 day school year. So it's a, it's a strong dose. We've shown that there's benefits to that intervention. There's efficacy in the intervention because we see increases in cardiovascular fitness from pre to post. Um, and what we find is, is, again, we see changes in brain structure. We see changes in brain function. We see changes in cognition. At times we see changes in academic performance, but it's clearly not as strong as those other changes, okay? There's several reasons for that. Um, one is, is that academic performance is a much more complex area to measure. So, you know, we take a laboratory task and we boil it down. We're controlling all aspects of that task, we're con you know, or as many aspects as we can. It's a, and it's a bit contrived. And we have strong internal validity on those measures, but poorer external validity. When we measure academic performance, um, we lose a little internal validity and we gain a little external validity, but it, it's, you know, the, it's, not the, it's not as easy to measure because you know, what goes into math or what goes into reading is a whole bunch of different functions. We're not just looking at executive function or, or maybe one or two aspects of executive function. There's all kinds of other stuff that goes into that, you know, attention and memory and perception and, you know, and, and whatnot. And linking that back to the brain is, is equally as difficult. Um, although we have done that, we've been able to do that on certain occasions. And so, you know, if we were to think about, well, why don't we take multiple aspects of academic achievement? Well, that's hard. I mean, there's standardized achievement tests, more internal validity. You know, people would argue it's not the best measure of what children actually, you know, have mm -hmm. learned in school. It's, it's good, you know, it's good, but without being great. We take teacher grades, which is a really good indicator of how they are day to day but that's not without bias also, right? And there's all kinds of studies showing that teachers, you know, uh, teachers' biases involved and, you know, kids have their own biases and parents have their biases and whatnot. And so it's a more complex area to study. Now, if we go to acute bouts of exercise, we see a much stronger effect. And um, acute means again, single, single dose. Right, right. Not, on, not ongoing. No. And so what happens there is we take, uh, we take a child and, we walk them on a treadmill in most cases for 20 minutes at a moderate pace. In my 15 years or so of doing this line of work, a little longer, we never had a child quit. It is not a hard dose of exercise. Yeah. I would probably equate it to the speed in which they would walk to school if they, you know, knew they had to be there, but they didn't have to rush, you know? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and we've also at times, uh, started now to use uh, high intensity interval training as well. And um, that's a much shorter dose, but you know, high intensity, and we're seeing benefits to both for academic performance. Time and again, we've shown that a single dose of physical activity <clears throat> benefits um, math and reading achievement um, with, within the hour following the cessation of the dose. Um, we've shown this in typical kids, you know, healthy kids a few times, 
We've shown in some special populations like children with ADHD, we see the same benefit. Um, and even my colleagues in Australia have shown some benefits of this as well, uh, both long-term and, and acutely. So when you can control the variables in the study and you can work directly with the kids in the, as you're talking about the acute bouts where it's right there and then you measure right after that, the effect of the physical activity on their, their cognition. Um, um, how, what's the time? I mean, is it one hour after they've done the physical activity where these benefits show up or how long does it take? Yeah, so we're actually learning a little bit um, about how long it takes. Uh, you know, we used to think it happened immediately after. Um, that's because, you know, we used to rush and get an electrode cap on their head, which took about 15 minutes. And now we started to put the cap on ahead of time and just secure it in place. We've actually shown that in the first five minutes, we don't see as large a benefit as we have uh, when, we, when we were testing 15 minutes after. So I can tell you that, that the effect from the dose we deliver, the effect lasts approximately an hour. But when it begins, somewhere in the first 15 minutes. So if you know if we're to take kids out and uh, and um, you know say move them around the the yard um, and have them you know out in recess and have them exercise, uh, they would then um, you know have to get back into the classroom and sit down in their seats and wait for the lesson. And that's probably about the right amount of time if I were to you know wager a guess. Got it. Okay. So. Knowing all this, with schools cutting back on physical activity because their feet are held to the fire regarding standardized testing, et cetera, et cetera, in a way, are the schools working against, against the best interests of the kids and their own accountability by not having the kids engaged in more physical activity during the school day? Is that where all this is leading? Yeah. Um, look, I'm not a pedagogist. I'm not an expert in schools and, you know, and education. Yeah. But from my perspective, it's time to update our, our school curriculum. Um, and in my view, you know, if, if I were an administrator of a, a school and, and genuinely interested in getting the best performance out of my students, there would be time for physical activity and probably music and the arts every day, because I know there's benefits to music as well on brain and cognition and what have you. Yes, we've talked about that, yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, uh, off the top of my head, I mean, if it were me, I'd probably have a 45 minute lesson followed by 10 minutes of physical activity, followed by a five minute cool down, then start the hour again. And I would operate like that throughout the school day. And as you probably know, you've been to University of Uveskala several times in Finland and Finland, at the elementary school level for every 45 minutes of academic classroom time, it's mandated that the kids get then 15 minutes of physical activity outside. So that's really what you're talking about there. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that Finland is doing it much better than other people. Denmark does it quite well yeah. too. Um, but, but, you know, Finland and particularly, you know, the exercise science folks at, at uh, the University of Oslo, they really know what they're doing. They're you know, that's a very strong program and there's great data coming out of there by several of them yeah. uh, showing that not just cardiorespiratory, but also motor, right? I mean, motor, right. Uh, motor performance or motor skill development has a great effect on, on these factors as well. Okay, final question. Sure. 
how, how many years have you been involved with neuroscience and physical activity? Rough guess. Well, that's funny because I actually was just asked today how long this is. Uh, I'm about to start my 22nd year as a faculty okay. member. Um, and you can add a couple years on as for my dissertation time, too. All right. So let's give you a quarter century there at least. Okay. Not what it was. Yeah. Okay. And you've probably been involved with, you know, I see you all the time on ResearchGate, which is the LinkedIn for researchers. You've probably been involved with hundreds of studies. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I've published somewhere just shy of about 300 journal articles. Okay, 300. 25 years, quarter century and 300, at least 300 uh, uh, studies. When you're uh, sitting around and uh, you're not rooting for uh, the Red Sox game isn't on television and you're thinking about your work, what's the big picture message you're getting from all the years of your work and all the studies and the, the results you've gleaned from those studies, what's the big picture message there? Yeah, hmm. we need to live more healthfully than we have before. I mean, you know, we as a nation, uh, you know, we as a species, you know, used to have to spend energy to get energy. And this is again, going back to really one of my favorite papers by uh, Fernando Gomez Pena called Revenge of the Sit. And, you know, really what it's come down to is as a species, if we were hungry, we had to go spend our energy in, to find something to eat. And when we did, we, uh, we consumed a lot of it, but it wasn't unhealthy foods. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, we spend very little energy. We type a few buttons into our phone and magically pizza arrives at the door and we're eating these, we're still binging. We're binging on high caloric, high density foods. And, you know, when you match that, with a, a real lack of physical activity, um, you know, we're becoming unhealthy. And so, you, you know, probably after say 25 years of this, I mean, I'm always happy to talk about what the study finds and, and, you know, or the newest study finds or, you know, how this should be implemented. But honestly, at the end of the day, I'm thinking about myself, which is, you know, I know selfish, but, you know, I, I eat, you know, I try and eat well, I, I exercise as many days a week as I can. I love to say I do every day, but, you know, I'm a little older and I still love, you know, combative sports like, you know, ice hockey and mountain biking. And my body doesn't like that every day, but at least, you know, I, I still walk to the train, which is, you know, about a mile walk each direction every day I go into work. And, mm -hmm. you know, so I'm building as much physical activity into my life as possible. Sure. I'd love for it to be organized and planned. But at the end of the day, if you can just get incidental physical activity, you know, park at the end of the drive, at the end of the parking lot instead of the closest possible spot, take the stairs instead of the elevator. You know, these are all things that can help accrue physical activity into your day. And that's actually one of the messages of the physical activity guidelines for Americans that came out in 2018, which was that we no longer have to do this in 10 minute doses, but we can try and accrue as much as possible throughout the day in order to meet the guidelines. Right. And when you say health, you're not talking just about physical health. It's both physical and mental, including the brain and cognition and things like this, right? Absolutely, Joel. In fact, I would argue that's more important. I mean, if, if, you're, if I have to lose one or the other, I'd prefer to be clear-minded and mm -hmm. probably not have as much use in my body as the other way around. Okay. Professor Charles Hildman of Northeastern University, thanks for being with us on Up On Our Feet. Thank you, Joel. It's great being here today.